I have a confession. I was so excited to be recording Amy Chua in person, my first in-person interview post-COVID, that I failed to do a proper audio check of her mic. As a result, you might have some difficulty hearing every word she says. To make up for this, we've added a full transcript of our conversation in our episode notes. My apology for this imperfect audio. When I had my own two children, even though my husband is not Chinese, he's Jewish, it was really important for me that they also speak Chinese. For me, it was more about just preserving the culture, knowing where they came from. And they identify as being Jewish, but for me, it was language that was the tie. So I hired graduate students to come and teach them Mandarin, even when they were babies. Amy and her husband had two daughters. The oldest was a really rule-abiding, easy kid. And my second daughter was just impossible. We argued from the moment she was born. And at 13, she rebelled against my very strict parenting. And I actually wrote this book when I thought I was gonna lose her, like in this very dramatic moment. I wrote it in a moment of crisis. And Steve, I wrote that entire book in three months. It just poured out. You're listening to Amy Chua, Harvard grad, Harvard Law School grad, now a Yale law professor, and the best-selling author of a book you wouldn't expect from a law professor, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. I didn't know it was going to be controversial. I thought it was just, how controversial can a memoir be? And then as the Wall Street Journal, the second thing that happened is they excerpted my the most provocative parts of the book, and they put the headline on why Chinese mothers are superior, which is not at all any part of my message. I remember a friend, and she said, Amy, I think you just hit the perfect storm when fear of parenting and fear of China just collided. We were talking in her office, which is inside the formidable Gothic-style Yale Law School building. Amy's desk was against the windows so that she could sit with her students and colleagues instead of across from them. The light from the leaded glass windows illuminated something that would be out of place in any other office at Yale Law School, a child's stuffed baby tiger. Meet the original Tiger Mom. Welcome to season five of America the Bilingual, where we are having conversations with American bilinguals whose languages have made all the difference in who they are and how they make a difference in the world. I'm Steve Levine. For this episode, we're getting to know Amy Chua, whose Chinese heritage has added something permanent to the English lexicon. You know, very few people get to add something to American idiom to English idiom, tiger mom. And it now, I think, has become part of American idiom. (laughs) Yes, apparently people even use it as a verb. I have students who report that they'll hear somebody say, I just, I I, I tigered mom my kid this morning. And it it actually made it into the Oxford Dictionary. It was the word of the year in 2011. Amy is the daughter of Chinese immigrants. 
My parents came to the United States in the 19, in 1960 to be graduate students at MIT. And I was born in Champaign, Illinois, the eldest of four daughters. And my mom in particular, I don't even know if she knew that she was going to stay in America, but it was incredibly important that Chinese was our first language. But her parents didn't come to the U.S. from China, and Mandarin was not their Chinese language. My own parents were part of the tiny Chinese community in the Philippines, so they were trilingual, actually. Um, their first language, and also my first language, is something called Hokkien Chinese. It's um, what they speak in the Fujian province of China. It's also the main dialect in countries like Singapore, I think Indonesia, parts of Malaysia, and Taiwan. And, but it's not a very common dialect in the United States, at least not when I was young. But it was the only language Amy and her sisters were allowed to speak at home. For every English word that we accidentally blurted out when we were little, we got one whack of the chopsticks on the palm. Did you actually get whacked yourself? First of all, the whacks were so light. I was the <laughs> oldest child and I basically avoided all the whacks. And by the time the third child came along, Amy says her mom was pretty much over the chopsticks. Welcome to parenting American style. I, I speak Fukienese, my first language. I'm so proud of this. Um, is by far the strongest in my family. What's weird now is I speak Fukienese by muscle memory. If I think about it too much, I can't speak it. It's just, but when I'm, I see my parents, I just fall right into it. And I, I have to not think about it. And then I'm super fluent. Wow. If I think about it too much, I'm like, so wait, what's the word? So how similar or dissimilar is Hokkienese from Mandarin. Completely mutually incomprehensible. Could you say something yeah. in, in a Hokkien dialect? Yeah. And then in Mandarin? Okay, I'm going to say I want to eat now. Okay. In Mandarin, it would be 我要吃了. Okay. In Hokkienese, it would 我没吃了. It's just <laughs> totally different. You went to Chinese school. When and what was that like? There are many different systems of Mandarin. So I learned both. There, there was like one way that was romanization teaching it was like using english letters and then other i also had to learn chinese characters and every time they changed teachers we'd be in a different system and i can cite chinese poems like pu tao mei zhou ye guang bei these are literally things that i learned when i was nine years old and it's like just stuck in my head and so we were supposed to write letters to my grandmother and that's where we learned it but my mandarin is very poor now like i can't I don't have a good business vocabulary. It's very household. <laughs> There's a lot of, I can say a lot of things about eating. When you read Battle Hem of the Tiger Mother, which is an engaging memoir, even if you're not raising children, you learn that Amy insisted her daughters become not only excellent musicians, but also fluent Mandarin speakers. They speak Mandarin better than me. I gave a talk in China, but I had to give it in English because my Mandarin wasn't good enough. But my daughter, Sophia, gave a talk in Wuhan, China to 20,000 people, and she did it in Mandarin. Whoa. Yeah. Sophia is her older daughter. What about that younger daughter, Lulu, the one Amy says was so rebellious? I just fought tooth and nail with her. And at a certain point, I thought, oh my gosh, I just need to give up. 
But she, uh, at a certain point, worked for, after, I think it was before college, worked for the Brooklyn Nets, a basketball team. And they made a couple trips to China. And she found that when I wasn't pressuring her, that it was really cool to speak Chinese, that she could actually communicate and converse better than anybody else. Amy learned English the way many children of immigrants do when she started public school. She didn't sound like the other kids, and she for sure didn't look like them. We were the funny-looking people. There's so many Asians now, but I was the only Chinese person in my entire elementary school, the only Asians in the neighborhood. Her family moved to California when she was quite young, where there were more Asians, but they were still a minority. When I was in fourth grade, a guy named, I still remember his name, Jeremy, pronounced the word restaurant wrong. I said, restaurant. Yeah. And he just was merciless. He ran around the neighborhood, making slanty eyes, cracking up, saying, restaurant. And of course, I was mortified. When Amy got home, she told her mother what happened. I think a lot of Western parents would be, oh my God, poor you, and sympathize. My mother, and this is going to sound mean, but my mother is the best mother. She was like, Amy, why are you even worrying about such a stupid boy? If he doesn't even know that we come for the most magnificent, the oldest civilization, they just forget about him. As I wrote in our another book more recently, The Triple Package, she was trying to respond to this horrible sense of insecurity I had by instilling a sense of, pride in my heritage. In Triple Package, which Amy co-wrote with her husband, Jed Rubenfeld, also a Yale law professor, they uncovered three success factors that many immigrant groups share. One is what we provocatively called a superiority complex. That is a sense of being a special people, whether it's like chosen people in the case of the Mormons or the Jews. Or in the case of uh, the Chinese, what I started off talking about, my parents were, my mother especially, always said, we come from the oldest civilization. We invented everything. We have this amazing culture, a great wall. Uh, and I know that's true of, of Iranian Americans. They learn about the great Persian empire. And it's often a coping mechanism because while you, in this country, you feel like, oh my God, I, people are making fun of us. We're minorities. We're outsiders. They're doing the slanty-eyed thing. So I think parents will instill, try to instill this sense of ethnic pride. That's what we call a superiority complex. So a superiority complex is the first success factor. The second seems like the opposite. A deep sense of insecurity. And you might be like, what? Uh, how can these two things to go together? And it's actually precisely that odd combination that is so fascinating. There's a well-known poster child for these two opposing traits, says Amy. Steve Jobs, he believed that he could change the world, a real superiority complex. But everybody who knew him also said that he had this deep feeling of inferiority and the combination gave him a chip on the shoulder. Like he just felt like he always had something to prove. And that's what that combination does. If you feel both like insecure and not quite recognized enough, that can create a real motivation. So a superiority complex and an inferiority complex, almost yin and yang, 
But then there's the third factor. Impulse control, discipline. And oh my gosh, Steve Jobs had that in spades. So how might languages and bilingualism play into your triple package? Until you raised it, I never even thought about it. But the sense of superiority, it brings us full circle. That's why I think my parents were so adamant about us keeping our native Chinese dialect. I think other parents were like, oh, we want our kids to assimilate. But mine were, no, we want them to have a sense of pride, which taps right into this superiority complex. And I think that's what was going on in my own head when I really wanted my children to speak Mandarin also. The insecurity, we don't even, if you're an immigrant, you don't need to work on insecurity. <laughs> you just automatically have that because you're an outsider. And then impulse control. The only way that you can get really fluent is just by practicing and talking. I think a parent that is instilling bilingualism in their children almost by necessity is imposing a form of impulse control and discipline, which I think is beneficial. Let's go back to fourth grade and Amy's nemesis, Jeremy, teasing her about how she pronounced restaurant. Future Tiger Mom decided right then to impose some discipline on herself. I just vowed to myself that I would get rid of my Chinese accent. And she did, although... I still, to this day, even though I'm a Yale Law professor, will say a couple of things wrong that just send my children into just gales of laughter. <laughs> Even though Amy erased her Chinese accent, the sense of shame and embarrassment from that fourth grade incident lingered because her parents never lost their accents. I would always notice sometimes people making fun of my parents and I would feel mortified. And, you, and your father was a professor oh gosh, of physics at... Uh, yes, a chaos theory at Berkeley. He's really prominent. His name is Leon Chua. They're, my parents are both still alive. I'm so lucky. They're Thank goodness. Sick. Yeah. Um, and they're really my inspirations. But I remember just being feeling so ashamed for them and just they're being made fun of their accents and they don't even know. And then I remember once telling my dad and he was like, who cares? So this is the greatest country in the world because he actually was the, the black sheep in his family back in the Philippines. So he eloped with my mother to the United States. He just couldn't wait to come here. And he's just the consummate American. This country was made for him. He loved, I still remember being in, Indiana and trying sloppy joes and steak and eat all you can, buffets and macaroni and cheese. And he just loved trying new things. And so <laughs> it wasn't that he didn't, that he didn't notice that people were making fun of sometimes when he pronounced things wrong. He just honestly didn't care. He, it really was a land of opportunity for him. It's not for everyone, but for, for him, it really was like a dream come true. But didn't your parents also want, want you to fit in and speak English perfectly? You know, they just didn't worry about that. And a line from my Tiger Mom book um, that has gotten a lot of play because it was controversial is I said, I used the term Chinese parents, but I think I meant tiger parents. I said that Chinese parents assume strength in their children, not weakness. They don't assume fragility. And that often can be have a virtuous circle. My parents just thought, oh, you guys are smart. You'll pick it up. When she was 16, the family went with her father on a sabbatical for a year to Europe. Four months in London, four months or five months in Munich, Germany, and five months in Lausanne, Switzerland. He threw us into a Munich public school with 
without any of us speaking a stitch of a word of German. And you were 16. I was fine. Yeah. And, but I picked it up. You picked it up. I picked it up. Same with I taking some basic French, but he threw us into French schools. I think my parents were unusual that way. They were the opposite of coddling. You said your dad was an expert in chaos theory. Yes. <laughs> he, he practiced at home, right? Exactly. <laughs> Some might say that the United States is engaged in a new kind of chaos these days. Amy explored this in her book, Political Tribes. There's a big change happening in the United States, which is for the first time in our 200-year history, whites are on the verge of losing their majority, probably starting around 2050. And this creates a real sense of insecurity among whites. Are we losing our position? So I do hear in darker circles, not such positive stuff. I believe there is a strong, silent majority that is becoming more tolerant. Even if you look within universities, my class is, is very popular and I have a lot of immigrants' kids. I would say like 75% of my class is probably bilingual, actually. Maybe it's 85%, many different languages. Uh -huh. they're, they're from many from Cuba, Venezuela, Colombia, but also Nigeria, Jamaica. So we have been talking about resentment against, I, I talk about cosmopolitan elites in the United States. These cosmopolitan elites that are, I worry that are, is this little group becoming the equivalent of the United States' own resented market dominant minority viewed by heartland Americans, rural Americans, blue collar Americans, this arrogant little group that controls all believers of power from Look, far. I worry about that too, in the sense that bilingualism has always been a gift that the rich have given their children. Yeah. And you're right. And now immigrants today also are in a position to give the gift to their children because clearly bilingualism is a professional and economic advantage. Yes. But what about the rest of us? What about middle America? Yeah, it's a real issue, a sense of just a large parts of the country being left behind. So what, what role does bilingualism play? I think you and I share common ground here. I think English is important as a unifying language, but it would be great to see more. I think language is a bridge. If you can't communicate with people, how are you ever going to build bridges? So, so the more that we can get people from different groups across America being able to talk to each other in English, but also other dialects, other languages, I think that would be great. It's not true that the whole world speaks English, as you well know, but it's almost true that the whole world wants to. The United States has the largest repository of English, native English speakers in the world. What do you make of those two facts? Wow, this is a resource. We have all these people, and it's good for people across the world to be able to speak English just because it's good for, for the economy. It's good for trade. It's good for international relations. <laughs> so if something more along the lines of what you've written about could be done, I think that would be a great direction to go. Amy then told me something about English that we Americans who were born in the U.S. may take for granted. I'm an immigrant's daughter. We, the, we were raised the, thinking the Constitution was just the greatest document in the world. And English was very important. And having studied developing countries that have, from Sudan to former Yugoslavia to Venezuela, that literally just Libya that fell apart, I have been very proud of the United States. We have this, thank goodness we are a country united by not blood, but really the ideas of the constitution. 
So it's not that English is necessarily the glue, but I think for people to be able to communicate and participate in our democracy and talk about the Constitution, I think it is good to have a common tongue, even as, of course, I couldn't be a bigger fan of everybody learning multiple languages. We do have a history in the United States of suspicion about other languages as perhaps a sign of divided loyalties. Do you sense that maybe we're at a transition point where we accept that English unites us, but we're becoming more tolerant of other languages? I hope so. Depends what day you're looking at. But just <laughs> never look on Twitter. Normally, this is where we would wrap up the episode, but wait, there's more. I want to share with you something else Amy and I talked about that day in her office, her newest book, which will be a surprise for her readers. I have never written fiction before, but I have a a book coming out called The Golden Gate that is my first historical murder thriller. It's situated in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1944. I'm only 50 pages in and and I'm loving it. I can't wait to continue. And the 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 main character. The main character is, is bilingual. And his father was Mexican. Yes, his father was Mexican but actually half Jewish on his Mexican side. And his mother is an Oki. You you can't tell that he I guess like myself. He speaks perfect English and he looks like a Caucasian. But when he's do investigating this murder in the Claremont Hotel and he's interviewing this maid from Mexico, she's very suspicious. She won't tell him anything. Until? Until he suddenly switches and asks her a question in perfect uh, Spanish with no accent. <laughs> and she's startled. And I think I say there, it's funny how you just, it's not that she just saw him as a different person because they shared a native tongue. But I have him say, I felt became a different person. He just slid into that other identity. And that's where we'll leave our story with the surprising turn in the surprising life of Amy Chua, law professor, scholar of ethnic minorities, the original tiger mother, and now novelist. Her gripping new book, The Golden Gate, is available in bookstores, real and virtual, near you. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Amy Chua. If you like our podcast, please share it. Send it to a friend and be one of our reviewers on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll be helping to spread the power of bilingualism to do good in America. I quote Amy Chua in my own book, America's Bilingual Century, because she has the very best quotation I've ever heard about accents. An accent is the sound of bravery. My thanks to the multi-accented members of the America the Bilingual team who worked on this episode. For sound design and mixing, Fernando Hernandez and his production house in Guadalajara, Mexico, Esto No es Radio. Also to Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director who wrote and directed this episode. And Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website. Gracias por escuchar. Thanks for listening for America the Bilingual. This is Steve Levine.